Hello everyone, I'm Dalton Breda. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are The Movie Nights. Well, some of them. If you're watching this, it's because you want to hear our uncensored and unfiltered thoughts and opinions about the world of movies. So kick back, grab a snack, and thank you for being a part of the conversation. We also want to give a quick shout out to the Podcast City Network, which we are a part of and really proud to be part of. We'll leave a link in the description below. And we are partners of The Great Movie Radio Show, which is a great little podcast that we're going to be on. And uh, go ahead and we'll leave a link in that description for that as well. And check them out, please. Very nice guys over there. Ryan, we're yes, back. We are. Back and at it again. And right off the top, we do want to give out some major updates about the channel moving forward. From now on, um, we're going to combine all of our segments, classic movie reviews, franchise spotlight, and then when theaters reopen, movie reviews. Although I could review some streaming movies, but I'm lazy. Um, we're going to combine all of that into the podcast. And then over the week post different clips from the podcast as those separate things but they will all originate right here with us doing this so we'll have one long podcast episode and then we'll split it up into clips throughout the week for you guys so you can watch it all when it drops in the podcast or wait a few days for the new clips to come out i think that'll work out for the best for everyone yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. that way if you want to stick around and watch it and hear our early thoughts on it you can or if you want to wait for your favorite mm-hmm. segment mm-hmm. that works as and well. it just gives the chances for our audio only listeners to hear like franchise spotlight cosmic movie reviews things like that Correct. so just wanted to give that up for you guys so keep that in mind moving forward so we're gonna go ahead and kick things off with our movie news section of the show correct mr warner are you prepared i am do you want to bring it up or do you want me to bring it I up i got it dude i oh, got let's it let's do it man Brief distraction to get my phone ready. Um, you like Jude Law. Oh, yeah, and everything he's in. I love Jude Law as well. You like Peter Pan. Sure. Fuck you, Peter Pan's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but uh, there's going to be a new live-action Peter Pan movie, surprise, surprise, live-action uh, Disney. Like called 20 Pe- other films like <laughs> Peter Pan. Called Peter Pan and Wendy. Okay. And it's going to be directed by the director of the Pete's Dragon live-action movie, uh, David Lowry. Lowry? Lowry? Lowry. However you say his last name. Um, which I think he did a good job in Pizza Dragon. But um, Jude Law has been officially cast to play Captain Hook in, <laughs> in Peter Pan and Wendy. Which I'm really looking forward to. I think that's a great choice. I think he's an excellent actor. And I think that, um, you know, obviously they have a good director. I don't know who's writing the film. But um, well, it says Lowry will co-write the script with Toby Holbrooks. I don't know who that is. But they're already adding talent. It's never a bad idea to add talent. And Jude Law, I think, is a terrific actor. And I think he'll personally make a great Captain Hook. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think Jude Law is very consistent with his roles. I don't want to say he's like one of the greatest actors working today. But he's definitely consistent with every role he's been in. At least from what I've seen. And I believe his most recent role was in Captain Marvel. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, but I thought he did an excellent job in that as well. Captain Hook, uh, I think it's a fantastic idea to Mm -hmm. add Jude Law to it. Like you said, it's never a bad idea to add good talent to your movie. Um, I'm very excited to see what kind of story and what kind of timeline this is going to take. Because it feels like every Peter Pan movie is just a little Mm -hmm. bit different than each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. And uh, I remember when they did the the first live-action Peter Pan movie, like in 2003. Mm-hmm. I liked it as a kid, but I revisited it a few years ago, and I didn't really love it. So um, hopefully they can knock it out of the park with this one. I'm sure. Um, moving on to our next story. This is one that you'll be particularly excited about. Excited, but also heartbroken. Excited, but heartbroken. Um, Blumhouse has, you know, due to the pandemic, has unfortunately pushed the release dates for a lot of their movies. Some 
by an entire year, some by a couple months. Like Candyman will now open in October instead of September. Mm-hmm. But uh, the big one was Halloween Kills will move from 2020 to 2021, and Halloween ends from 2021 to 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, however, production has been far underway for those films as it was supposed to come out this year. Mm-hmm. And um, also, as a sort of, you know, we're sorry that we pushed the movie, they did release a 30-second teaser for Halloween Which Kills. Is so rad. Go ahead and give me your thoughts on that. Uh, it's fucking rad. Are you kidding me? Like, after watching that first movie, I was like, man, what a great way to like end the Michael Myers storyline. And then I heard that they would be doing the two sequels, and I naturally got a little bit, uh, a little nervous, but still excited because I love the Halloween uh, franchise. Um, nice but, touch. Nice yeah, touch. Thanks, man. Um, but I love what they released because it, it, I'm assuming that this is going to be like the first shot, if not one of the first five to ten minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. With Laurie and I yeah. can't remember. The it other it looks like it'll with. be right at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, kind of similar to how the original Halloween two picked Picks up, up right, after. right after Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that they took that approach because it's like okay, that makes sense as to how Michael Myers lives because the fire department comes out and mm-hmm. you know takes care of the fire and thus he lives. Um, but very very excited, but also heartbroken that it did, it did get pushed back. But I think it is the smart choice, obviously, to make every, make sure everyone's safe. Yeah, you know, I agree. And um, I also loved the teaser. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is the Forever Purge was also pushed back by a year. Mm, I didn't even okay. know they were making Purge movies anymore. Maybe. I saw the first three. I didn't see the one they did after that or watch the show. There was a show. Really? That got canceled, but I never watched it. Oh, wow. But um, that got pushed back. But uh, in accordance with the teaser, really awesome teaser. Although, like, I understand why they kind of, like, did it as, like, oh, we're sorry. So here's the teaser. But it's, like, right, thank you for teasing me for a movie that's not going to come out until October of 2021. <laughs> like, yeah. well, what am I supposed to do with these 30 seconds? It was a good 30 seconds. You even see a glimpse of the man himself at the end. Oh, yeah. Which was cool. I mean, I imagined he survived if they're making two sequels. Could you imagine if Halloween kills and Halloween ends? Just, like, no, he died that first time. <laughs> this is now a comedy. And <laughs> it just looks like a completely different movie. Um, Takes an Evil Dead approach. Oh, oh, I wouldn't hate that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll believe movie theaters will reopen when I see it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, luckily, one Cinemark, the one on CityWalk by Orlando over here, has opened up mm-hmm. just as like a test. And I've been able to see a ton of classic movies there. It's been really fun. I saw Jaws, Terminator 2... Um, Empire Strikes Back, Back to the Future, um, The Matrix, and oh, there's one I'm forgetting about. I'm forgetting about one, but I saw a bunch. That's rad, man. Yeah, it's been so fun. I'm gonna keep going as long as they. And let it's been me. a safe environment. Yeah, no, um, they, you know, obviously at Universal at City Walk, they have temperature checks and masks are required, like mm-hmm. just to get to City Walk. And then when you get to the theater, they have this um, system to where when you buy tickets. Your party can sit together, but then the the two seats to your left and right they block off. Okay. So whether you're by yourself or with people, the two seats to your left and right get blocked off. They've been sanitizing the theaters, and they're only open for limited times. I think like one to eight. Okay. Like the last movie can start at eight, so it's been really nice. It's been convenient. It's not that far from me. I just Mm kind of got lucky with one opening right here. Yeah. But I'm gonna take advantage of seeing these classics as long as I can because I'll probably never get this fucking opportunity again. Not for a while. Yeah. No. It's it's been so much fun. Uh, But moving on to our next story. This one uh, is, is intriguing, to say the least. Now, we normally um, 
a lot of TV news happens, and we normally don't cover TV news mm-hmm. because we have our own show last month on TV where we do that, which hasn't happened in a while, partially because I'm lazy with scheduling, partially because there's just a ton of shit going on with the world and schedules. But I called both Ben and Nick to say, hey, do you mind if we run a, a TV story, even though it's my show, and I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> I still felt, I felt the need to ask. They're never going to work for me now because I'm being a douchebag. S- stealing their jobs. Yes. <laughs> but... Um, we are gonna. We haven't forgot about that show. It's not canceled or anything like that. We will get to that. But in the meantime, I had to talk about this story because this mm-hmm. is huge news. HBO Max, which I'm a member of, and I like it. I like their content. The app itself, not so much. But the content's really nice. I like what they have so far. And um, the Batman, starring Robert Pattinson, directed by Matt Reeves, comes out in 2021 in theaters. But it is now getting a spinoff TV series in that specific Batman world. For HBO Max. Okay. Which I think is very interesting um, for many reasons. But um, it will apparently focus around the Gotham Police Department, hmm. which I think is very, very cool. You know, the GCPD. Sounds familiar. Kind of like the Gotham TV show did. It's not confirmed whether um, Jeffrey Wright will be playing Gordon on the show. But since it's in-universe, if Gordon's going to be on the show, it will obviously involve Jeffrey Wright. So we're very early in like what, what it's going to involve. We don't really know. But we know that Matt Reeves will executively produce and might direct the pilot of the show. That's not confirmed, but it's that Speculated. might happen. Yeah. And we know who the showrunner will be, and that showrunner's name is Terrence Winter. And Terrence Winter is an incredible writer. He's been writing in TV for a long, long time. I believe he wrote the wire he wrote for the wire. Let me let me make sure that that's what he did. But while I'm looking that up, overall thoughts on a Gotham City Police Department show, which we don't know the title or anything like that. Um, being on HBO Max, are you worried that's going to be too similar to Gotham? Do you have like uh, pros and cons from this early stage yet as to what could be happening with this? I'm just very curious to, to know the reasons why they're doing this show so early on in uh, production for the Batman. Because they have started shooting it before uh, the pandemic happened here in the States. Um, but uh, like... Is that just Matt Reeves being like, hey, you know what? Let's do this. I have the money to blow on it. Let's do it. Well, well, from what I understand, Matt Reeves had signed an overall TV deal with Fox and Disney, mm-hmm. which basically what that means is if you have any ideas for a show, we're going to be your people to do it. Just let us know and we'll start the process, whatever. Basically, when you have a TV show, you have to come to us first and we'll green light it or not green light it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, he moved the deal from Disney to Warner Brothers. And pretty much what that happens is he was able to negotiate with Disney like, hey, clearly I don't think we're going to work well together, but can can I take this deal and take it somewhere else? They approved, and he moved it to Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, since he was at Warner Brothers and he's making a Batman movie, he was like, hey, I, I, let's expand on this Batman world that I'm creating. Because I think it's very obvious at this point it's not going to be part of like the DCEU. No. And he's like, hey, I want to expand more on this world, spend some time in this you know criminally corrupt Gotham that I'm creating. So let's really expand on that, give it the time it needs, and give it a show. And they enthusiastically said yes for HBO Max, and now we know we're at where we're at. And by the way, it wasn't The Wire. This writer, Terrence Winter, wrote for The Sopranos. Mm. I knew it was an HBO show. He wrote for The Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire Vinyl, and he also wrote the screenplay for The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, wow. So we are in good hands with this show. Yeah. But what what I'm curious about, because there hasn't really been any details about this yet, HBO Max is a subscription-based thing. Mm Mm-hmm which means there probably won't be any television limitations to 
how adult the show can be. So my question is, I, I don't think the Batman's going to be rated R by any stretch of the imagination, but can you see um, this Gotham show being like a TVMA, like Daredevil-level violence mm-hmm. on the Netflix side, or do you think it'll be more tame like Gotham? I mean, Gotham wasn't tame, but do you think it'll be more have more constraints of like a cable television show, or do you think that they're going to go all out since they have these... Un- more or less unlimited limitations. How, how do you see this show playing out? I mean, we know nothing. This is speculation. Yeah. But just, I want your thoughts about what it could be. I think it's going to take a really dark approach. Because um, with the current Gotham, they can only do so much because it is on. It, did, it, did, it you is say, in, did you say Gotham? Yeah. It, it is. It's Gotham. You always fucking do this. <laughs> every time. Um, really, every fucking time. <laughs> Predator, Shane Black's Predator is great. Fantastic Don't let movie. anyone tell you different. Anyway, go ahead. Um, but they'll they'll probably like explore it a little bit more, like the darker side, especially since it is going to be like based or it's going to surround the GCPD. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like in the current Gotham show, it's about like the relationship with Gordon and like kind of his rise to yeah. being um, Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, and, and with, his you know, story, Brucey boy in there too. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'd imagine that they're gonna really take a look at the dark psyche of the criminal underworld like you might even see something as gruesome as like joker beating robin to death something like to that level you know Mm -hmm. because you can't really get that on a show yeah um that's broadcasting because you know there's certain rules and restrictions yeah um but with streaming they can really just do whatever you Mm. whatever they want like you said yeah and that's not to say that gotham didn't have violence like especially the first season of gotham was pretty gruesome Mm -hmm. and they tamed it later on so, like, you know, with violence on TV, you can get away with more stuff now. I think I think what I'm really curious about is on a more thematic level, like the things they're going to explore. Like, mm-hmm. especially with today's current climate with police and police brutality, like, I can see maybe them doing stories surrounding something like that, but in a fictionalized Gotham world. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting to see. And I think since you're on HBO Max with a potentially more adult rules and audience that you can mm-hmm. get away with themes like that in a serious way and not just on the surface level like you could probably do on a network cable show yeah and i'm curious that if, if it, jim gordon's going to be in the show because we don't know if in the batman if he's a commissioner we don't know if he's like deputy gordon like sort of like a uh, um gary oldman was and mm-hmm. he kind of became commissioner gordon we have no idea i feel like if it starts off and he's commissioner in the batman movie and i don't know if this show is a prequel or if it's a sequel like taking place at the same time but if if he's already a commissioner and if like the show takes place after the batman then well, we may get like an appearance from him or yeah. two, because it'd be interesting to see this story around like younger police, de- like police deputies. And it'd be even more interesting if, in the sequel to the Batman, like we got to see some of these characters. Because mm-hmm. Marvel hasn't really, not to compare, but Marvel hasn't really gotten into that stage yet. I mean, they're about to with Falcon and Winter Soldier and all those shows. Yeah, but for example, with the Netflix shows never mentioned or even showing up in a movie the only television character that originated on the tv show on a tv show and made it into an mcu movie was the actor who plays jarvis from agent carter he showed up in Mm, endgame okay it's the same actor who was with howard stark it's the same jarvis from agent carter okay he's like that that's the only one that that that's happened and, but it's not like blatantly obvious. Like you'd have to. Yeah, like watch. if if you didn't watch Agent Carter, you would have no idea that that was the same guy. Okay. And so, well, Marvel, I think we'll get into it more. Like when you get to like the Moon Knight show and the She Hulk show, like well, especially WandaVision. Yeah, like they're gonna really tie into the movies more. But I, I think this is a great opportunity for you know Matt Reeves for Warner Brothers to be able to do this, and I, I hope that they make the show violent and dark as hell. 
Yeah. I mean, not you don't have to to be for it to be good, but I feel like it'd be a wasted opportunity for HBO Max mm-hmm. to not take those risks. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I feel like it's just a big risk because we don't know how this Batman movie is going to work. It could it could be a stinker for all we know. It could be. I I'm feel really. I feel really. Um, sorry about that. I feel really confident in the movie mm-hmm. with Matt Reeves and you know everyone being behind the movie. I feel like it's going to be a great film. And especially with the cast. The cast is amazing. Mm-hmm. But you bring up a good point. We have no idea how this movie is going to be. And I feel like if the movie is awful, then they might rework this show. Like, mm-hmm. like I think we're going to wait and see how this movie is going to do before we get any serious details on this Batman show. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting regardless. Did he sign a, mo- a, a multi-movie deal for the Batman? Or I, was it I just- believe Matt Reeves plans on doing three. Okay. I don't know if he signed to do three. But he's mentioned in the past that he wants to do three. Because that would be really fascinating if this movie and the show kind of coincide with each other. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't, I can't imagine it. Again, it's all speculation. But, like, Robert Pattinson showing up in the TV show and then an, an event happens in the TV show mm-hmm. that is a precursor to the second movie or third movie mm-hmm. even. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would love it. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. But then again, you might get that, some backlash just, on like, oh, we're forcing people to get HBO Max to keep up with the movie. I mean, I think that's why you're doing it. I mean, that's what they're doing with Disney Plus. That's true. But but also, what I think is interesting is that it incentivizes not only getting HBO Max, mm-hmm. but it, it incentivizes doing other DC content and like just you know going expanding the universe. It really gives more opportunities for creators, mm-hmm. and I think it it really um, can get people to be excited about cross platforming. Get more people into comics. Get more people into other characters. I think it's a good thing overall, and and it's free marketing. Yeah, like like if you are watching the like if we're, if we're watching the Batman two, and in the movie a character from the show shows up and it gets a good pop in the audience, but you've never watched the show. You're going to look at your buddy and be like, why did everyone just clap? And they're like, oh, he's on a TV show. Like, there's a TV show? And then you just marketed that TV show. And then if someone watches a TV show and then doesn't know that it ties in with the movie, which would be impossible, I think. But then suddenly they're going to go out and watch the movie. It's just free marketing. It's it's a hole-in-one if the movie's good and financially viable. Mm -hmm. I think it will be, but we'll see. We'll see. But you do bring up a good point. Nothing is guaranteed, especially in show business. Mm-hmm. Especially in show business. You never, never know, which is why it's so fascinating that they have to- serious talks right now about having like, this Gotham show in this universe without the movie even being finished yet. Mm-hmm. Like, the executives haven't even watched this. They made a- they might have seen, like, dailies, like, unfinished dailies, but that's really it that they've seen. So it's fascinating that they just be like, yep, let's go ahead and roll with this, unless... Matt Reeves pitched a badass television series to go with Gotham and, like, kind of what would entail in that show. Exactly. Now, final story before we go on to the other parts of the show today. Ryan. Yes. There had been some worries that AMC theaters may not be able to survive this drought that we've been in. Mm-hmm. However, they've recently been saved a little bit. <gasps> Yay. Um, they have, this comes to us from Deadline. There's a new debt deal that ensures AMC will be open all the way through 2021 and that's even if theaters didn't open this year oh wow like they have enough money you know through this new deal that they've made i highly recommend reading the article on deadline it's very fascinating but um pretty much people are going to bring in a bunch of about 200 million to 300 million in capital to help with their 600 million in debt to make sure that they're able to run and even if theaters didn't open this year that's enough to run through all of 2021 Hmm. so if theaters do open this year 
Then, like I said, we open September, which please open by August 12th for Tenet, for the love of God. If they open up September and they have this new deal, it's going to work out, you know, obviously in spades for them. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really excited about that. And um, what, what are your overall thoughts on, you know, AMC theaters, you know, getting sort of this break in the sweating chain? And um, are you happy to hear this news? Oh, yeah, no, I'm very excited to hear this news because I know, like, for the longest time, even back whenever I worked at um, Cinemark, AMC always seemed like the theater chain that was always hurting the most, always hurting. They were always struggling. So I'm glad to know that they got some help. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully when theaters open, when it's safe enough to open, that people go out and go see movies yeah. in packs and packs and just consistently keep the theater business up and afloat. Yeah. Um, because that's what it takes. It takes you going to see movies every weekend and every day to like mm-hmm. keep these businesses afloat. So I hope that you know they open this year. Obviously, I want it to be safe. Um, but I'm glad to know that they are safe through next year, even if they don't open this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, they were in a real shitty scenario at the beginning of this year because they spent all of 2019 getting into a bunch of debt to eventually be out of debt. They were spending money to make money. They were marketing their new A-list program. Mm-hmm. They were upgrading all of their theaters across the nation and they're the biggest theater chain in the world. Mm-hmm. So they were in the pocket. But um, by the start of 2020, A-list had finally started producing positive profit. Which, by the way, I think is a fantastic program. It's a great deal. I love it. I hope it comes back when they reopen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, its first year, it was still in the negative because, you know, you're going to lose money on that great deal. But then the second year, it was starting to generate profit because people were realizing, holy shit, this is a great deal. And you always going to get those people who get it and never use it. Mm-hmm. But they finally had started to get a pop. They, they, they were going on the up. And eventually, excuse me, upgrading all the theaters, you're going to see those go on the up as well. And then this happened when they were in the peak of their debt which is why they've struggled so hard to reopen. Mm-hmm. But it's great to hear this news and knowing that they will be able to reopen. I'm going to go back to the AMC that we go to as soon as they reopen. Absolutely. So I'm really excited about this. I'm just excited for movies to come back. Please come back. Please. Yeah. It sucks not going to theaters and watching movies. Yeah. It's it's the worst. All right. Moving on to the next section of our show. This is a new section that Ryan has contributed and I'm really excited about. Here comes our unpopular movie hot takes where we talk about a different hot take regarding the film industry and give an unpopular opinion and try to defend ourselves for that reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, I'm going to let you go first on this one. What is your unpo- unpopular hot movie take today? Okay. I need to work on intros for all of these. <laughs> I, I, ju- I just have the show intro, yeah. and we need. To, I need to get the, the rest of them. We will. We'll get there. We'll get there. Oh, you know what would be fun to do is if we like record something like similar to how oh, we have yeah, the yeah, intro yeah, yeah. with the movie nights. That would be cool. Like do one for each segment. That'd that would be, be cool. cool. Yeah. Um, but in, in like 20 years, we'll get there. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We'd have to put in our busy schedule. Yeah. yeah. Um, but naturally, whenever you read a good comic book, whenever you read a good book and you hear that it gets turned into a movie, naturally you'd be very excited because you're like, man, I love that book and it's going to make a fantastic movie. Now, my take on this is that the movie owes absolutely nothing to its original source. And I say that because they should they are artists, essentially. They are creating art. Yes, you can base something off of something else, but you owe nothing to it because this is now your work. Uh, most famously, The Shining, 1980s Stanley Kubrick's. Mm-hmm. Uh Oh, boy. Stephen King, that's his name. <laughs> Stephen King wrote the book, <laughs> oh The Shining, boy. and Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick was like, hey, 
let's make that, but I want to make it mine. Mm-hmm. Well, as everyone may know, Stephen King absolutely hates that movie because mm-hmm. it is nothing like his book, and that is by far his least favorite movie of Stephen King's work, of his work. Of Stanley Kubrick's work. Yes. Thank you. That was It sounded right in my head, but as it's I was right. coming it's out, right. I was like, oh, it's, boy. It's all good. And I think this is very unpopular because I've talked to a few people, and I understand both sides, but I do side with what I just said, that they don't owe anything. And it's uh, it just it doesn't feel right if it is exactly like the book. Because mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, if you're going to make it exactly like the book, if you're going to make it exactly like the comic book, why am I watching your movie? Mm-hmm. You have to do something to entice me to watch your movie. And making it completely original is how you do that. Like Jaws, for example, the book is different than the movie. They left a lot of things out from the book. I personally have never read the book, but I believe oh, you I have. have. And it's, would you say it's completely different or just slightly different? It's very different. Okay. See, and that might be in the movie's favor because Jaws is by far, hands down, in the movie industry, one of the greatest achievements in cinematic history. It's a scenario where the movie is actually better than the book. Yes. And and I'm not just saying that because I love the movie. And and you get that a lot, Mm -hmm. I feel like. And as someone who's creating art, I would want to see your vision, your plan Mm -hmm. for this original work. Because if you're just going to make it exactly the same, then I feel like that's just wasted talent at that point. And you really should make your movie with your style and your vision based off of that original IP. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel about it. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on that take? I do. Um, I agree with you about 96%. Okay. Um, I think that you should, should, with with the statement... A movie owes nothing to its original source material. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think the only thing it owes is the spirit of the source material. Okay. That same general feeling, the same general DNA mm-hmm. is what it owes. Nothing beyond that. And that goes for comic books too. You can change comic books and make great movies. Civil War, anyone? Days Future Past? But, um, I, sorry, I know people are going to get mad. But um, with that being said, I think that the goal of the filmmaker shouldn't be Let's make a movie that's like the book or make a movie that's like the comic book. The goal should be, let's make the best movie we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's following the source material. Sometimes it's doing something completely different. Sometimes it's in between. It just depends on the filmmaker and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen movies that are just like their book not turn out all that great, even though it was just like the book. Mm -hmm. And the book was fantastic, but the movie wasn't. Yeah, or sometimes the book shit, and then the movie follows the book and the movie shit, like the Twilight ones. <laughs> no, but, but um, like that second or third, I read the first three Twilight books. Let me tell I'm you, sorry. I didn't read the last one, but that third Twilight movie was just like its book, and they're both trash. Hmm. Um, but then you have examples where following the book relatively closely works in the favor, like Hunger Games, mm-hmm. and even Catching Fire. And Catching Fire is a better movie than Hunger Games one. But Hunger Games 1 book is a better book than Catching Fire, even though they're virtually the same, which just goes to show things translate on screen in different ways than they translate on the page. Correct. And like, and there are some movies that follow their source material very well, where I was kind of thrown off by how well they followed the source material because I wanted to see what it did differently. Mm-hmm. Like Watchmen is very similar to its source material, but d- even down to the dialogue mm-hmm. of the movie. And while I like the Watchmen movie... I was the only letdown I had with it was I wanted to see what they were going to do differently. Like I didn't want to see a direct 
adaptation. Now it was cool to see like panel recreations and like moments that I really hoped were in there see be brought on the screen. That was great, of course. But even to the point of the dialogue, like the dialogue in the Watchmen graphic novel works because it was unlike di- dialogue from other comic books. It was its own thing, mm-hmm. but it wasn't movie dialogue. You know what I mean? Yeah. That part didn't really translate, excuse me, to the screen very well. And I think that you have to be careful when you do something like that because you have to be able to somehow incorporate your style, your vision, your DNA with what you're doing. And the pre- part of the reason why I still like that movie is because you can still tell that's a Zack Snyder film when you watch it. Right. Although it is very similar to the source material, I do think they should have changed some more. Mm-hmm. But overall, I like the film. But like you said, with Jaws, almost nothing like the book. Very few similarities. Mm-hmm. Much better film. Jurassic Park, very different from its book. I actually prefer the book Jurassic Park. But I still, really? Yes. Okay. But I still love the movie. The movie is an all-time classic, mm-hmm. and it's great. But because Spielberg took the DNA of the book, kept that DNA, but then made it with his style and his way of filmmaking. There is a reason why Best Adapted Screenplay is a category at the Oscars. Because adapting source material is equally as hard, if not harder, than coming up with an original story. Because you have to adapt it for the screen, which is two completely different mediums. And you have to be able to know what is worth putting in the movie and what is not. Yes, and and you just have to know what works better on a page, what works better on a screen. Mm -hmm. Because there are some things, and animation even is the same way. Sometimes you see live action things based off of something animated, and something can work well or be funny in a cartoon, and then you get to the movie, and it just doesn't play the same. Well, Last Airbender, for example, the TV show is fantastic, mm-hmm. but it doesn't translate well in M. Night Shyamalan's movie. Mm-hmm. Although, yes, have your own opinions about that, but mm-hmm. just that style does not work for that movie. Yes. They would need to do an animated movie to get the feel of it in mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and they're doing a live-action Avatar show, mm-hmm. but I feel like they're going to get writers and people who know how to adapt much better than they tried to adapt that. Mm-hmm. It's all about how you adapt things. Um, Adaptation with Nicolas Cage is a great movie where he plays a screenwriter trying to adapt a screenplay. Okay. It's really good. And it kind of dives into this if you haven't seen it. It's a great film. Interesting. Uh, uh, but do you have any hot takes that you want to bring to the table? I do. Go ahead. My unpopular hot take revolves around kind of the uh, a conversation that I had the other day with somebody. Okay where I was talking about the magic of the subjectivity of film, which is something we bring up all the time, and people that we love and watch, like the Screen Junkies, John Campia, Dan Merle, all kind of bring up the subjectivity of film and why that's such a powerful thing, how two completely different people can like the same movie or two very similar people can dislike the same movie, vice versa, switch it out. That's what I love about movies. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I had a conversation with somebody who tried to convince me, did a bad job, convincing me of... Well, no, 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 no. There are some movies that are objectively good or objectively bad. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, explain yourself. And they were like, uh, for example, The Godfather, that's an objectively good movie. And I was like, I'm sure I could find somebody who doesn't like that movie. And they said, well, then they're wrong. And I'm like, no, 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 no. My my whole thing, my hot take is all film is subjective, no matter what. And then I, I even spoke to another person who then tried to get me to explain Oscars to them. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, well then how, how can it have awards if it's a subjective thing? And I'm like, well, the awards aren't like the only thing that the movie has. There's box office. Like how many billion dollar movies have been, have you thought were fucking terrible? How many movies that made zero money that you thought were excellent? 
and then how many movies that you loved didn't get any nominations, how many movies you didn't love get a bunch of nominations, that happens. And I'm like, the reason that that happens is I, 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 got, I got it down, and the person I was talking with, this is a different person than the first person, but I, I got them down to um, even they pitched the idea they were like, because they're a big sports person, mm-hmm. and they kind of brought it down to, oh, it's kind of like the Heisman Award in college sports, of how it's kind of them predicting that this person will go on to do great things, even though sometimes they can give the award to the player, and then their career's done right there. Like, they don't go on to be in the NFL or do anything great. And I'm like, it's kind of like that. They're kind of awarding things that think are going to have, like, are going to stand the test of time and like be known as great cinematic art. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And sometimes you have forgotten classics that don't even get Oscar nominations, but are still phenomenally better than half the movies that get there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like how does Back to the Future not get a Best Picture nomination? More specifically, how does the Back to the Future score not get a Best Score nomination? That music is the shit. Regardless, I'm getting off track. I firmly believe that there's no such thing as an objectively good or bad film. I think you can always find somebody who disagrees or agrees with you mm-hmm. and that that person is never wrong. Asterix, as long as they back up their reasoning correctly, or when I say correctly, when they back up their reasoning with stuff that you can understand mm-hmm. and not dislike or like something for a false or wrong reason. Example, I, I went to high school with somebody and I was talking to them about Star Wars and uh, they said they liked the prequel movies more. And I was like, oh, interesting. Why do you like the prequel movies more? And they said, because the actors are more attractive in the prequel movies. <laughs> and it's like, first of all, you've never looked at Harrison Ford before, clearly. And secondly, that's not a reason to like or dislike a movie. I talked to another person who prefers the prequels. And they said, I'm a huge student of history, and I'm fascinated by the Roman times. And I believe that the prequel Star Wars trilogy is a perfect metaphorical representation of the fall of the Roman Empire. And I was like, what an excellent reason to like a movie. Mm -hmm. I disagree. I thought it was mitigated trash, all three of them. However, I completely see why you would like that movie. That's the magic of of subjectivity. That's why I believe there's no such thing as an objectively good or bad film. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I think everything is subjective, not even just movies, but TV show, art, any, music. Any art. Any art. Yeah, yeah. Everything is subjective. Um, but I will say before I forget, I do disagree with you on the point of like the one person who said, oh, I like the prequels more because they're more attractive. I think that any reason that you like something more than the other, I think is viable. Like, for example, uh, if someone were to ask you why you think this movie is bad, you could just be like, I don't know, but I feel like something is missing. And I feel like that's totally justifiable because sometimes you may watch something and you're like, I don't, I don't know what about yeah. this is good. Yeah, but like, like you can't quite put your finger on what it is. Correct. So I think like even saying, oh, I think the people in this movie are much more attractive. I think that's justifiable, although it may not be the reason you want to hear why someone likes a movie over the other. But everything's subjective. For example, uh, earlier this year, The Invisible Man came out. Lee Wynell's Blumhouse's uh, Invisible yes. Man. Yes. We watched it in theaters. We were absolutely scared shitless. Uh, we watched it before the rest of our group did, and we were like, oh my god, this is like one of the yeah, greatest... Ryan and I loved it, yeah. One of the greatest modern horror movies of all time. And then the rest of our group watched it, and they were just like, this movie 
blows. Yeah, like Kyler and Nick hated it. And we were just like, like they didn't what? just not love it. They hated it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they gave their reasons. We gave our reasons why we loved it. We agreed. Yeah. We disagreed. And we were just like, hey, yeah. you know moved, what? That, moved on. Exactly. Yeah. And that is what is beautiful about film is that mm-hmm. you could watch the same thing and have two either totally different opinions or similar opinions. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love film discourse, especially whenever you disagree, because it oh, brings it, up, it makes it so much more interesting. It does absolutely because yeah. you bring up different points mm-hmm. on how you viewed something, and that is why I absolutely love ambiguous endings. Yes, because you too. never know what's going to happen after the credits roll. Because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, maybe this happens, but then you're like, then you watch it with someone else, and they're like, no, this happens, and you're like, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and that, that is what is so fascinating about the subjectivity of film. Literally, a movie that does that that I that I argue with people all the time about mm-hmm. what happens after the movie's over is American Psycho. Okay. That has a very ambiguous ending that everyone thinks this is what happens. And then I try to convince them my point and mm-hmm. it's it's always a fun discourse to get into that. Um but yeah, no, I I see what you're saying, but also but then that means I have to defend the people of like, "Oh, I don't like I don't like movies that have subtitles." Or I don't like movies that, you and know, And that's totally a preference. This reason, but preference is different than watching and emoting a feeling in my eyes okay see and we can agree to disagree on even this shit yeah so yes because like i i I personally know some people who Mm -hmm. don't want to watch foreign films because they don't want to read the subtitles Mm -hmm. and that's totally fine to not watch the movies although i do think you need to give it a try because Mm -hmm. there are some fantastic you're gonna miss out exactly um but if you watch the movie and then you say, hey, I missed, I feel like I missed a lot of the movie because I was reading the subtitles. Totally fine. Then you don't like the film, yeah. and that's totally fine. But mm-hmm. don't dismiss something without trying it, yes. in my eyes. Yes. And I can do a whole conversation about this, but you can't talk about a, shit about a movie unless you've seen it. Just yeah. want to, or positively for that matter. But um, but yeah, that's my that's my unpopular hot take because I know some people feel like that there are movies that are objectively good or bad, and that's what's so fascinating. Like mm-hmm. when you look up like the greatest movies of all time, and then yeah. it's like, no, these are what you think are the greatest movies yeah. of all time. I could disagree. Like you said, The Godfather is Considered, regarded as yeah. like the greatest movie of all time, but you actually prefer Godfather Part Two. I do, I do, and that means mm-hmm. in your eyes, Godfather is not the perfect movie of all time yeah. which is very fascinating and, but but also that just goes to the testament of the power of film that a collective group of film watchers can watch the same movie and be like all agreed this is the fucking best like that this mm-hmm. was great like so i love movies that obviously that, but, that, but that's yeah. you know neither neither here or there um yes i i like that segment i like that we're doing that so yeah. thank you for that Course. I, I think it brings up interesting discourse. I think it does too. I think it does too. But now we're going to move on to the new section of the show, which was formerly their own videos. But now we are going to venture into classic movie reviews where Ryan and, Ryan and I review a movie that we consider a classic. What's a classic to us? That is a movie that is in high critical standing, has a good following of fans, and came out at least 25 years ago. Ryan, what movie did we review this time? Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks's comedic masterpiece, Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein, that's what it is. I, this is one of my all-time favorite comedies. It might be my favorite comedy. Mm-hmm. I love, 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 love this film. Um, I Let's just dive deep right into it and st- yeah. go off and start right away. One of the best things about this movie is Gene Wilder's lead performance as Dr. Frankenstein, as he likes to put it. Um, I love that he kind of gives a very serious performance and he can kind of drift from being really dramatic and serious to very funny on a dime, like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing to do, and I think he does an excellent job of doing it. 
Um, I really, really enjoy um, Marty Feldman as Igor. And just, oh, yeah. And, and the dynamic between the three leads, between Frankenstein, Igor, and Inca, the actress's name who plays her is leaving me right now. But their dynamic works so well throughout the movie, and every time they're on screen together, you know some hijinks is about to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that this film, with most comedies that I really love, this was a good movie first, and then it was funny. Mm-hmm. You could take the comedy out of this movie and still have a great story with a great character arc about what's going on. And I also love that this movie is both a spoof of Frankenstein and a sequel to it. Like, they acknowledge the events of the classic Frankenstein as, like, happening before. And Bride of Frankenstein, to that matter. And they really showcase that when they're having their town hall meeting, because they're Mm -hmm. like, no, we've had a Frankenstein here before. Like, we're not going to do this all over again. And it's a very, like, it's one of the more serious moments of the film until the inspector shows up, which adds the comedic element to it, which goes to show what you were saying about it being a good movie and then Mm -hmm. a good comedy because that is a good moment where the characters are like no like we got to get rid of him we got to stop him from creating this monster and then the comedy rolls in Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, i'm gonna go grab my notes from my notepad that i left in the other room so go ahead and start talking about things that you enjoy about this film well like you were saying about it uh about gene wilder's performance being serious while having comedic lines and comedic moments a scene that really stands out to me is whenever uh, the create uh, creature comes down after being shocked by lightning, and Gene Wilder is trying to like resurrect him, and it's a very serious moment that he wants this creature to come to life, and he like turns around to walk away, and then he comes back and like chokes, and he's like, "Oh, you son of a bitch!" and starts like hitting him, and that's the comedic part of it, but he's he's giving a very serious performance. Oh yeah, no, like you you really feel. When this movie is going on, you really root for this guy mm-hmm. to like achieve the goals that he wants. Because when the movie starts, he's very distant of his family, doesn't want anything to do with his family. So much so, even the pronunciation of his family name. Yeah. He, oh, he's, it's Frankenstein. He doesn't want to be re- even referred to as Frankenstein. And something that you brought up during the movie, and I, so I want you to talk about it more, is how his grandfather's philosophy, the original like Dr. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein was of reanimating dead things, and his philosophy is the preservation of things that are already alive, and how they're actually the same philosophy, and when he realizes that is when he, and when he's obviously given the family house and the will, is when he decides to continue that legacy, when he kind of comes to the conclusion that they're the same philosophy. So go ahead and dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, it's actually very fascinating, because I didn't catch that the first time obviously he's like i'm not like whenever he's teaching his class he's like i'm not interested in dead things i'm interested in the preservation of life so he actually Mm -hmm. tells you what he's you know he he tells you his desires exactly what what he loves yeah and uh whenever he gets to the house and he's like and, and he his first interest is actually finding his grandfather's secret library because obviously he knows his family history about how his grandfather uh would reanimate dead things so he wanted to find this and kind of see where his studies would go and then internally he realizes that like if he resurrects something he is preserving life because he is making life mm-hmm. immortal he's making people immortal and live forever and that is the preservation of life which goes hand in hand with his grandfather's philosophy of resurrecting the dead although they had two different visions on the same point it is essentially the same thing which I think ties greatly into it being a sequel as well to the original Frankenstein movie mm-hmm. and I it was just so fascinating watching that because, again, you don't really realize that until he's like, 
really studying like uh what's the book called like how i did it by (laughs) victor frankenstein yeah yeah and he's like even reading it while they're eating dinner and he's Mm -hmm. like more interested that in that rather than Mm -hmm. eating because he's just like this is how i preserve life this Mm -hmm. is how i make people live forever and even whenever he gives his presentation he's like i have found a way to make life immortal Mm -hmm. for us to live forever because Mm -hmm. he is preserving life and i just found that to be so fascinating and you get these deep thematic things with one of the funniest fucking movies ever made. Yeah. Like, the comedy in this movie is very much like Monty Python-level comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, that style of humor. And um, and I, I kind of wanted to go into talk, talk about, like, specific bits in the movie, because yeah. I probably won't do clips since it's part of the podcast and audio. I don't want people driving in the car, and suddenly this clip plays, and I'm like, damn it. But, uh, damn but, your eye. <laughs> too late. Too late. God, great segue. But got so many bits, especially with the Igor character. Like, uh, I love when they first meet, and... Uh, Igor's like, you must be Dr. Frankenstein. And he goes, Frankenstein. And he goes, oh, they told me it was Frankenstein. And he goes, no, you must be Igor. And he goes, actually, it's Igor. And like does that. But then he's referred to as Igor for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I love how there's also callbacks in the movie. Like I love how when Dr. Frankenstein tells him his name is Frankenstein, Igor's like, oh, so then is your first name Frodrick? And he goes, no, it's Frederick. And he goes, well, why isn't it Frodrick Frankenstein? And he goes, because it's Frederick Frankenstein. And he goes, Okay. And then later in the movie, he scares Dr. Doctor Frankenstein, and then he goes, Igor! And then he goes, Frodrick. <laughs> and it's so damn funny. And uh, for any Aerosmith fans, a fun fact about this movie, there's a great comedic bit where Igor is walking downstairs with a cane, and he says, walk this way, and like walk a certain way, and then instructs Gene Wilder's character to do the same thing. And he like copies him. And then Aerosmith used that scene as the inspiration for their song, Walk This Way. Just a little fun fact and about the And then later, there. Run DMC, which I think their version is much better. <laughs> oh, we can fight about that some other time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, just the comedy in this movie, like I said, like, what, knockers? Oh, thank you, Doctor. And, like, people who haven't seen her are going to be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah. I promise you, please, please watch Young Frankenstein. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. But uh, were there any bits in the movie that just particularly, you know, tickle your feather? Uh, definitely the running joke of his hump or his hunch or, <laughs> yes. uh, whatever it is. Like, cause he shows up and he's like, he taps, uh, Igor on the back and he's like, Oh, I don't mean to offend you, but I am an excellent surgeon. And he goes, what hump are you talking about? <laughs> and then what later hump? on, um, uh, Frederick Frankenstein, <laughs> uh, is like, Oh, I thought your hump was on the other side. What? What hump? And he just like just doesn't even realize it and yeah. just dismisses it, which they I think just, is absolutely they hilarious. They just keep switching the sides of the hump. I also like that uh, Igor will break the fourth wall a lot. Mm-hmm. Like after he does that, like what hump are you talking about? And like the goes away. He looks in the camera and he's like, and like <laughs> he's going. It's so funny. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I just I, I do think Igor is the funniest character in this mm-hmm. uh, movie, especially especially whenever they're riding back to the castle and there's wolves <laughs> howling in the distance. And uh, I can't remember the girl's name, but she goes, werewolves, they're a wolf, they're a castle. <laughs> Why are you talking like that? I thought I you thought wanted, you wanted to. to. No, I no. don't. Oh, oh, suit, suit, suit yourself. yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm easy. easy. <laughs> uh, what a fantastic such, bit. Such a great bit. And um, uh, I also love the bit with Gene Wilder's, uh, with Dr. Frankenstein and with Inca when uh, the candle bit, when they're trying to get to the secret library and they keep lifting the candle, the door keeps spinning and they're just trying to figure out like how the hell to get it to stop. That was great. Um, 
I, I love the uh, when the Frankenstein monster gets about, and they actually spoof scenes from past Frankenstein movies, like the scene and just the Frankenstein story, mm-hmm. like the scene where the monster meets the little girl, and where in the movie he accidentally kills the little girl. And this, they go on a seesaw, and the parents are in the house looking for the little girl, and they can't find her, and they're freaking out. And then he sits on the seesaw, and she just fucking yeets into her bedroom, and the parents open the door like, oh, thank God you're here. And uh, they also spoof a scene from The Bride of Frankenstein with Gene Hackman playing the blind man who, like, lets Frankenstein in. And in The Bride of Frankenstein, which, ironically, is also a comedic kind of movie, in that movie, the scene, that that's, like, the heart of the movie, the serious scene where this blind person doesn't know that the monster is, like, this horrific thing and, like, treats him like a normal person. Mm-hmm. But, but in this movie, you know, he's, like, spilling soup on his lap and trying to do all this. And at the end, he's like, where are you going? I was going to make espresso. Like, fucking yeah. such a good spoof bit of that. I definitely want to go back to the scene where you're saying, like, Frankenstein, uh, the creature mm-hmm. meets the little girl. Because uh, they know that it's a spoof. So she they're throwing, like, a clover or something in the mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And she, the girl's like, oh, like, what else can we find to throw in the well? And the camera slowly zooms on the creature's face. And <laughs> yeah. he just, like, looks... <laughs> at the camera and it's like yeah. okay like you know that you're yeah. a spoof and yeah, like yeah. It, it's it's like you said it's a great movie and a funny movie and, and and from the audience perspective if you've seen frankenstein and you see the little girl by the well you're like oh how are they gonna how yeah. are they gonna handle this one and it's, yeah. just, it's it's fantastic with their humor and they don't mm-hmm. overdo it because it's like it, it'll have like serious moments and mm-hmm. then funny moments to yeah. end it and then a serious moment and then a funny moment and then sometimes it'll be funny 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 and then serious mm-hmm and like like especially towards like the second act of the movie is like all comedy and yeah. it's so funny oh the bit with Fire Blunka where every time they say her name horses fucking go off yeah. even, even when they're like across the city so great uh, but it, it's this great great movie but do you have any negatives cuz that is what i find interesting is negatives about a movie uh the only negative that i really that really really digs me about this movie cuz like you you can nitpick this movie a little bit cuz sure. some some of the for the most part, the blocking is really well done and the acting is well done, but you can tell sometimes they're just over-exaggerating to, like, mm-hmm. propel a scene forward. But I think my, the only major problem that I have is I, I think you can take off, like, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Now, you couldn't just take a 15-minute section out. You might have to take out sections from here or there because, mm-hmm. like, it's pr- a pretty well, welly tight-knit movie. But th- around towards the beginning of the third act, you kind of start to f- be like, okay... I'm ready for this to wrap up. Mm-hmm. And I love this movie. It's one of my favorite comedies, but that's the only like major problem that I have. But I think there are so many pros about this movie that for that to be the only con for me mm-hmm. doesn't really take me out of it all that much. Uh, honestly, I do have to piggyback off what you said. Young, young Frankenstein, I'm sorry, uh, does feel a little long. I don't know if I can just pinpoint it to a specific moment. Like you said, just like pick it out here and there that time mm-hmm. needs to come out. Uh, but definitely towards the middle, towards the end, I was really starting to feel the length of this movie. And it, it's not even that long. It's like an hour and 40, hour 45. Hour 40, yeah. Mm-hmm. Something along the lines of that, which is like short for today's movie standards. Mm. Uh, but it just, it feels like it's long. And I don't know whether it's like the story that's losing me or just what about it. But it, I'd have to say the biggest negative and probably the only negative I can think about this movie is that it does feel long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I... I definitely see that, but uh, what do, what, what, I know we have different rating systems. What mm-hmm. would your kind of overall grade be of the movie? Uh, probably a four. I'd, I'd sit at four stars out of five. Okay, okay. What about you? You know, it does have that one flaw of it just kind of being a little le- overly long, mm-hmm. or in the correct way to say, um, some pacing issues. Mm-hmm. But a 97 out of 100 is still an A+, my man. It and is. This is one of my all-time favorite comedies, and I just think there are so many pros 
that that one little con only dips it that much. So yeah. I'm going to give Young Frankenstein an A+. I've given out a lot recently. I, mean, I don't normally do that. but Which we're just on a great track, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jaws, E.T., Young Frankenstein, fucking... What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what the fuck are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, great, great stuff. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else you have? Any other final thoughts about today? Anything moving forward? Any other... Um. Oh! Um, since Franchise Spotlight will now be combined into this show now, we're going to go ahead and take the entire Franchise Spotlight Back to the Future video and go ahead and place it here for our audio-only listeners if you haven't done so. Um, if you've already listened to it, then um, you know you can skip to the end. If not, here is Franchise Spotlight, our Franchise Spotlight for Back to the Future. Here you go. So coming out in 1985 is the star-studded fucking classic movie Back to the Future, the first installment uh, so let's go ahead and uh, get this rolling. I didn't mean to hit that, but go ahead and get this rolling with your thoughts and opinions on it. Well, Back to the Future is one of those rare movies that I would describe as absolutely perfect. Okay. I love Back to the Future. I actually just recently got the chance to see it on a big screen in the theater with a crowd. Safely sitting apart, though. Don't worry. I mean, social, distancing, social distancing. Unlike what we're doing right Yeah, now. <laughs> Yeah, this is not it. This is not how you do it. Um, but it was an absolutely fantastic time. And, of course, it wasn't the first time I've seen it. I grew up watching this movie with my mammal. Like all, I used to like wear out this VHS tape like so much when mm-hmm. I was really, really young. Um, it's such... I wouldn't describe many movies as just pure cinematic magic than this movie. And there's a plethora of reasons for that, which I'll dive into unless you want to give overall thoughts before we get into specifics. Yeah, yeah, I'll give my overall thoughts. Uh, this movie is, you know... My favorite adjective, fun. Um, you can't help but have a good time when you watch this. Uh, every movie ha- every movie that deals with time travel establishes their own rules and mm-hmm. laws of time travel. And I think this movie does it exceptionally well. Yes. Because uh, it doesn't just lay everything out at once. Mm-hmm. As it goes, they kind of describe how time travel it works. It slowly peels back the curtain as you watch the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it does a fantastic job of describing those rules because it's not like forcing it down your throat while you're watching it. It's just like, why is this happening? Oh, because there's this rule that they just explained. And it's not uh, spoon-fed to you either. It, yeah. it, it makes sense in the context of the movie. Yes, and uh, diving into specifics of you know excellent things about this film, one of them being just the overall chemistry between Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. They are so well on screen together. <laughs> You made it! Yeah! Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. And specifically the performance of Christopher Lloyd. Like, Doc Brown is such an iconic role and just such an iconic performance that every you could see someone remotely dressed as Doc Brown and just recognize who they are by how they act. The over-the-top mannerisms, the, you know, great Scott! Like, there's so much to do with that character, and Christopher Lloyd just perfectly embodies every part of that character absolutely he's such a fantastic physical actor in this because he has to be well not necessarily he has to be but he is just over the top with his uh, mannerisms like you said just a great physical actor with his comedic timing with like his eyes and like looking yes. around the, and... the best eye acting in the entire world yeah. is this guy in this movie um, michael j fox does a great job as well too mm-hmm. but overall the, the cast does an excellent job and especially when they when they have to be covered in like the makeup that makes them look old, which yeah. which is kind of jarring after you've seen them young. But in the beginning, it wasn't that bad. But mm-hmm. then once you see them young and go back, you're like, oh god, like it looks kind of rough. Yeah. yeah. But uh, 
You guys, Crispin Glover as George McFly. Oh my God. You see us uh, struggling in the car. You walk up, you open the door, and you say, You're lying, George. Oh, uh, hey, you, get your damn hands off her. You really think I ought to swear? Fucking unbelievable performance. Mm-hmm. He's so, so good. And it breaks my heart that he distances himself from these movies, which we're going to get into why once we get to the second film. But God, every scene he's in, he just chews the scenery and steals it. Just his, He plays that perfect, awkward, you know, false hope kind of character. And mm-hmm. it's just so almost cringy to see but you're supposed to feel that way by how he's doing the performance it's just so funny absolutely and one takeaway that i took that i had uh when watching this movie again was i love whenever michael j fox goes back into the past and he's talking to doc brown and he says ah geez doc that's heavy and doc (laughs) is just like what does weight have to do with this? Because he doesn't understand yeah, the 80s the lingo. Because yeah. it's obviously 30 years in the past. Your sister will follow, and unless you repair the damage, you'll be next. Sounds pretty heavy. Weight has nothing to do with it. And it's just, it's little things like that that help you as a viewer tell like what timeline they're in mm-hmm. and what Doc Brown is on screen at a time mm-hmm. the, with little things like that. Yeah, and this whole franchise, but specifically this movie, is full of great bits mm-hmm. and like and running jokes like the, hey, why, why do you have a life jacket on? Like that whole bit is hilarious. Oh, he must be in the Coast Guard. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love the bit with the uh, mayor who's the janitor at the restaurant and then he goes, I'm going to do something with my life and then Marty's like, that's right, he's going to be mayor and then he goes, Mayor. Yeah, yeah. I love I love that little bit and I there's so many like this movie's attention to detail is amazing. Like mm-hmm. a bit that I was discussing with Ryan earlier is there's a scene in the nineteen eighty five originally they meet up at Twin Pines Mall, but then when Marty goes back in time, he runs over the pine of the who would eventually be the owner of the mall and it becomes the Lone Pine Mall, which is just funny little shit like that. Yeah. And the writing the overall writing of this film, the screenplay, is actually quite brilliant. Um, in the first act, there's some dialogue that's kind of cheesy, but I think they're just overemphasizing like how he deals with bullies and with Biff and things mm-hmm. like that. But once he you know, goes back to 1955 and you start to see more and that script unravels, there's, there's so, much, so much great setup in the movie. Like when he's making out with his girlfriend and then save the clock tower. And you think that, oh, that's just this girl being annoying, but it's actually setting something up for much later. And something that this movie does that I love is it will set up the audience, sorry, to know something and then let the characters find out. Mm -hmm. But the audience is always one step ahead of the movie until the end. And then that's why suspense gets felt, which we'll get into later. But like, for example, there's a scene in 1955 when they're trying to figure out how they're going to isolate a bolt of lightning into the time machine. And then um, Marty shows Doc something that's written on the back of the newspaper that's of the 1985 newspaper that says um, lightning strikes clock tower 30 years ago. 10.04 p.m. Yeah. And he's like, God, like, look, look at the back. No, he's talking about his girlfriend. He goes, look, this is this is her phone number. Like, look how look how much she loves me. And then so Doc is reading the back of it. But the audience sees the other side of the newspaper mm-hmm. that has the lightning striking the clock tower. And they were just talking about how are we going to isolate lightning? So the audience is like, oh, fuck, you got to use the clock tower. And then two minutes later, oh, wait, wait, we know when it's going to strike. And then so mm-hmm. it's like just that 
little pacing. It's almost used for pacing. Yeah. And it was done really well, I think. And I like little things like that in the movie. And even, like, the opening. Because um, I don't think there's a character on screen for the first three or four minutes. Because mm-hmm. it's just going through, like, a bunch of clocks and yeah. articles that were written about this once great professor. Mm-hmm. Um, or this doctor, rather. Mm-hmm. And just telling his life story everything you need to know about him about how he was kind of like a nutcase and Mm -hmm. um well there's a whole theory behind why he's a nutcase if you want to go ahead and get into that yes uh doc brown is definitely suicidal in back to the future part one it's a fan theory that i think we both subscribe to Mm -hmm. um there are little details in the movie like for example it's very much implied that he wants to crack time travel or die trying and when he puts einstein in the car to be the test he actually steps in front of the DeLorean, so either he succeeds or he dies. And he infamously tells Marty, hey, like, I got the idea for the flux capacitor because I was hanging up a clock, and then I slipped and hit my head on the sink in the bathroom. Well, I think he was very much implied that he was trying to hang himself, mm-hmm. and then it broke and he hit his head, thought of the idea for time travel, then devoted his life to trying to figure out that thing before he, you know, bit the dust. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason, because, like, there's a, a penultimate scene where... Marty convinces him he's from the future when he says, no, you told me. I know how you got that scar. You said you were hanging up a clock and you slipped and you hit your head on the sink and then that's where you got the idea for the flux capacitor. And I think that Doc Brown had just come up with that cover story in his head and hadn't told anybody yet, but he was going to tell people that's what happened. Yeah. So when Marty told him his cover story, that's how he actually knew he was from the future because he's like, how did he know that that's the lie I was going to tell? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what convinced him otherwise of where he is. And it's it's interesting to think about and when you see And there's hundreds of videos yeah. if you search it and yeah. find it with like people diving deep into this movie. Yeah. Uh, but that's pretty much just a quick overview, mm-hmm. which is a very fascinating theory once you think about it. Because mm-hmm. um, the DeLorean is coming straight at Doc Brown and Michael J. Fox steps out of the way and Doc yeah. brings him back in in front yeah. of it. Because yeah. it's like, like you said, either mm-hmm. he succeeds or he dies trying, you yeah. know. It's very fascinating, very dark, dark theory. Yeah, but also something that I think this movie deserves credit for is how funny it is. It's it's a hilarious movie. It is. You know, like, uh, and also the action, it shows what a smart character Marty McFly is. Like, whenever he's on the skateboard in the 50s and he rips the thing off, mm-hmm. and the way he maneuvers around people and, like, sending Biff into the Tower of Shit. It's so funny. I will say Biff is one of my favorite antagonists of oh, all time. He's the, just, like, the, this yeah. dumb meathead, like... <laughs> He butthead. Yeah. Like, hello, McFly, anybody home? Like, and just the performance is so good. Yeah. And of all, of all the characters and yeah. all the actors, I yeah. think. Do Leah it. Thompson does a great job as mm-hmm. Money McFly's mother as well, um, especially in the sequels. She just does great in all of the movies. Yeah. And um, ironically, the actress who plays Jennifer, his girlfriend in the first movie is a different actress in the second and third movie. They recast her mm-hmm. because... Right after Back to the Future came out, her mother was diagnosed with cancer. So she quit acting to, like, help her mom. And she didn't start another movie until, like, 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah. But ironically, kind of like Evil Dead, Back to the Future wanted to show the ending scenes of the previous movie in each of the sequels. So they reshot the end to Back to the Future 1 with the new actress Mm because Jennifer is in the final scenes. Yeah. So when you watch Back to the Future 2... It's not the same scene. They literally reshot it with the new actress and just did like a shot-by-shot remake of the end of the film, Yeah, which I think is another interesting thing about it. One thing that I think Back to the Future gets unfairly criticized for Mm -hmm. is um, the silly thing with the picture and like watching his siblings disappear. And yeah, on paper, that is kind of silly, 
but I think the way it's used as sort of the ultimate suspense tool. Yeah. Like you also you kind of think it's silly when you watch it, but it does provide a timeline and it provides a sense of urgency for mm-hmm. them to complete their mission. But also when he's fucking playing the guitar and then he can't and then he starts to disappear. Like I remember being a kid and being like, no, <laughs> like you're so close. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I think that that's unfairly criticized for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there are some things that don't age well in the movie, like the infamous John Mulaney bit where uh, he's like, and we're going to imply that a white man wrote Johnny be good. So we're going to take that from him. You know, yeah. there's stuff like that in the movie. That's unfortunate, but um, overall such a great fun movie. It, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It has mm-hmm. humor. It has heart. Uh, I will say of all of them, I think this is the one that takes itself the most serious. Mm-hmm, probably. Uh, and when you watch the other ones, it, it you can kind of see that. Uh, but going on to the next one, which I believe came out in 1987. 88. 88. 88 is Back to the Future Part 2. Very original. Maybe, maybe even 89. I think it was, no, it was 89 and 90. Yeah. Mm-hmm, that yeah. sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, they reshot the final scene in Back to the Future, the first part. Mm-hmm. And then that's how the second part opens. Yes. Um, again, starring everyone except the girlfriend was, was recast. Uh, in this movie, they go to the future to look at Marty's kids and help them. And then they go back to the past to 85. And then they Only go to back. find out that shit's fucked. Only to go back to 1955 into the first movie yep. to re-reset some shit. Which is... This movie has a lot going on. Yeah. To say the least. Oh, I have notes. And you know what? Notes. You know what? When they went back to 1955, they really fucked everything up because 2015 passed and we didn't have flying cars. We didn't have hoverboards. I know. I know. Assholes. Ass. But the style was no, pretty honestly, cool. The self-tying Nikes is what I really, really wanted. Yeah. That'd be rad. The hoverboard yes. too. Are you kidding me? Yes. Oh, um, one of the things I put in my notes, I have pros and cons about this movie. Okay, movie, go ahead. It conflicts me a little bit. Same thing with the third one. But... Um, this movie does something a pro in this movie is that it does do a good job expanding onto the Back to the Future universe because you know when this first film was so successful they were discussing ideas of like okay what if they went to the future what if they did this what if they did this and it sets up the world nicely and the flying DeLorean is famous so cool yeah and you know the way that it was able to feel like a natural continuation of that first movie Mm -hmm. hey doc you better back up we don't have enough road to get up to 88 Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey, Marty! Ma- Marty! Marty, I wanna, I wanted to show you these new matchbooks for my auto detailing I had printed up. Like the Lorian? Also... This is the first film role for Elijah Wood. Did you know that? I did. He is the video game arcade boy. Yes, he little nice little cameo from Frodo Baggins. Mm-hmm. Nice to see. Um, another thing that I have is I love the idea of the sports almanac in the movie being the pivotal pivotal point. Yeah, and, and I also like that the of all the things it predicted, it didn't predict like the internet. So like almanacs are a thing in yeah. 2015. But because uh, honestly, you can ask yourself that question like. Oh, I just like smacked the shit out of that. I am so sorry, guys. <laughs> like you can ask yourself the question of like, would I take the almanac? It's like, fuck yeah, I take the almanac. I'm not, I'm not morally above doing that. And you have that. to think about it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Marty McFly is a 17 year old kid in high school who wants to be a rock star yeah. and make all this money. And what's mm-hmm. the quickest way to fame mm-hmm. is 
predicting the future. Yeah, and there's an interesting scene where Doc Brown kind of like gives him shit, like, no, you can't take the sports almanac. But yeah. it's, it's not necessarily, he doesn't want him to get rich. He's just like, you're going to really fuck with time if you take this thing, yeah. you know? And it and the fact that it ends up in Biff's hands, of course, is what drives the story forward eventually. But um, one of the uh, cons that I do have is that there's less attention to detail in this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really seem as tightly put together as the first movie. And also, a lot of the first act of the movie kind of relies on it being the future. Because mm-hmm. they're pretty much just doing the same things that they did in the middle of the first film. Even to the point where the Biff character says there's something really familiar about all of this. And they literally just kind of did it again, but it's in the future. Like, this time, with instead of a skateboard, it's a hoverboard. And, yep. you know... So and like going around and he like yeah, crashes into yeah, a yeah. thing of shit. And I, I was more interested in Marty McFly just like exploring, like walking around mm-hmm. before they did the actual, like just trying to redo things again. And it kind of like fakes out the audience and setting up like it's going to be about the future. And it turns out, no, that's not what it's about. So I'll give the movie a pass there, even though it's kind of messy because I feel like I don't know this for sure, but I feel like that was a marketing trick. Mm-hmm. Like it was marketed about it's going to be about the future and then. After the first act, they're out of the future. Yeah. So I felt like maybe that was just to keep the audience on their toes. I will say a lot of the things, speaking about the future, that I really did like were a lot of the things in the background, like the whole, like, Jaws 19. And then if you look at the uh, marquee, it says directed by Max Spielberg. I don't yeah. know if that's his son's actual name or if that's just, like, yeah. a, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, like, little things like that in the background I really like. Yeah. And also, I... Uh, one of the things that I also like about this film is, like the first one, just the chemistry between oh, Ryan McFly and Doc Brown. And also the recurring jokes are still really funny mm-hmm. in the future as well. Um, it kind of doubled down into Marty's family in the future, which was kind of... Uh, there's a lot of setup for the third one. The second one and third one are very closely knit Oh, absolutely. Movies. Like, you can have the first movie and not have two and three, but you can't have two and not have three. Mm-hmm. Like, they're very... They even set up things in two that later get paid off in three. Like, when Marty watches the Clint Eastwood movie where he uses the bulletproof yep. vest and which things. Which is a huge point in yeah. the third movie. And also... Um, that's when Jennifer finds out that he crashed a Rolls Royce and oh that's a great thing that I love in this movie that is in this movie and in the third movie was the chicken bit Mm -hmm. stick your card in the slot and I'll handle it unless you want everyone in the division to think you're chicken like how Martin McFly doesn't like to be called chicken because it was honestly like one of the like especially in the 80s it was a lesson on, you know, don't try to be this macho person or else it's going to come back and bite you in the ass. Because yeah. every time Marty succumbs to that, it ruins his life a little bit more and more. Mm-hmm. And you see him learn that lesson throughout the second and third movie. But I thought that that was an interesting character thing to introduce into this movie was the idea of him slowly succumbing to, I want to say almost like toxic masculinity in a way, of him not being able to control with the things people say to him. I thought that was just an interesting thing to add into the movie. It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. I agree because... He kind of learns from that, and in the third movie, you know, plans ahead because of the Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah. Um, but still, he doesn't like to be called chicken, and he doesn't back down from a fight either. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating, like you said, how they dive into his family a lot deeper, especially whenever they're at the cafe 80s, mm-hmm. and his son is a wimp, and he realizes yeah. that, so he has to, like, you know... Great dual performance there, too. Yeah, absolutely. Be the man and, like, mm-hmm. stick up towards mm-hmm. Griff, I think yeah, his Griff, name is. Biff and Griff, yeah. Biff, Griff, and Buford. Yeah. God. <laughs> oh, boy. No, um, uh, something else, uh, a big positive of this movie is that this movie is fun as hell. 
It's yeah. just a big and it, it doesn't take romp. itself seriously like no, the first no. one did. But um, a huge negative, two huge negatives for me on this movie. One is the just, it's a very messy movie. Like so much goes on and it doesn't quite know how to balance it all. Mm-hmm. Like you got to just kind of watch and just hopefully it'll make sense later. And the exposition in this film isn't quite as well done as the first film. Because in the first film, whenever exposition was happening, when you were learning more about the time machine, you're also just learning more and the scene would remain interesting. Mm-hmm. So like when you're learning more about the DeLorean in the first movie, you also find out like, oh, there might be Libyan terrorists after us. So the whole time there's suspense and you're learning about the time machine. So it's multiple things happening at once where ways this movie and part two will literally stop to give you exposition. Mm-hmm. And that was a little bit annoying. But I think my overall big negative with this movie is the fact that there's a major inconsistency in it. And I didn't even pick it up until the most recent time we rewatched it. And it's how old man Biff steals the DeLorean, goes back in time. It's a 1955, gives it to Biff, goes back to 2015, drops the car off. And then Marty and Doc Brown go in, go back to 1985 and find out everything's messed up. Well, Marty suggests, well, why don't we just go back to 2015 and stop Biff? And Christopher Lloyd is like, well, no, we can't because that future doesn't exist anymore. And it's like, well, shouldn't that have happened when Biff went back in time? And then came back to 2015. Like, wouldn't that 2015 just have ceased to exist? And then you're like, all right, well, maybe it takes time. Well, when they drop Jennifer off at her house and then go back to 1955, Marty says, oh, my God, we just left Jennifer there. And Doc Brown's like... Don't worry about it. As soon as we complete our mission, like right when we're done, that future will cease to exist and she'll be fine waking up at home. And mm-hmm. it's like, which is it? You know, yeah. it, it wants to have its cake and eat it too a little bit. And it's funny because like things like that don't really bother me because I did notice mm-hmm. that when I was rewatching it. Um, but I definitely can say you are a lot more critical on movies. Well, I, I think the only reason it bothered me is because the first one was so airtight. Yeah. And the only complaint people have about the first one is like, how do his parents not recognize him? And it's like, the person who was in their life for one week. Yeah. Like, I've known people for a week, and I don't remember their fucking name or what they look like, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I never really understood that criticism. But, like, the other than that, the first movie is so airtight. And then you get to this movie, and it just let itself go in so many ways. But, I digress. A major, major positive about this film. Its third act, when they go back to 1955... It's fucking unbelievable. Like, I compare how I kind of feel about this movie in a similar way to how I feel about Rogue One. And for anyone who's listened to us for any period of time knows, I think the first two acts of Rogue One aren't that great. They're not bad, but they're just kind of whatever. Mm-hmm. Not very well done, but could be worse. And then the third act is one of the greatest third acts in cinematic history. And it really kind of changes how you see the rest of that movie and saves it in a way. Yeah. Same thing with Back to the Future 2. One of the greatest third acts in cinematic history and it really helps bring that story forward. And if that third act were any different, I would feel very differently about Back to the Future 2. But its third act is so well done, it's so well paced, and it's especially how it ends, like when he gets that fucking letter and he goes, we told, we were told to come here at this day, at yep. this time. And he goes, do you need any help? And he's like, there's only one man who can help me. And then it cuts to fucking 1955 Doc Brown. You're just like, oh, fuck yes. This is how yeah. I want this to end. Like, it, come, it brings it full circle yeah. again at the end of this movie. Such an incredible third act. And it really kind of puts to the wayside a lot of the negatives that come from the you know previous two thirds of the film. And it's interesting that you bring that up because when you look at this movie, I think that the third act has to be 
as good as it is and as tight as it is because there is so much going on in the third act compared mm-hmm. to the rest of the movie because they go back to 1955 and Doc Brown is like, you have to avoid your past self, yeah. which is your future self. So not only do they have to complete their mission by getting the almanac from Biff, but they have to avoid Biff because that Biff is dealing with the first Marty McFly and then Doc Brown has to avoid Doc Brown, which he runs into him mm-hmm. at the clock tower and he's like avoiding him. He like backs up into him and he's like, oh, do you oh, yeah, really mean a great like this wrench instead? Yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, thanks. And it's just like, it's close calls like that. You're just like, please don't recognize each other. Like just don't yeah. muck up anything. Yeah. And I think for that reason, because there's so much going on, it has to be aired. And I just remembered something, a, a little detail that they set up in this movie that I fucking love that you didn't even realize was set up until later mm-hmm. was when Marty buys the sports almanac in 2015. The 80s shop lady is like, oh yeah, this this opens up with a dust buster because in the 80s people were afraid of dust getting on their paper before we had the automatic dust remover on our paper. And you just think like, oh, it's, she's just, it's just needless dialogue. Well, later in the movie, when Marty McFly thinks he succeeds and has the almanac, he opens it and it was just that fake covering over a nude magazine. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly that previous dialogue became set up for a crucial moment of like, oh no. So I just, I thought that that was clever of just like disguising that exposition as like a needless thing mm-hmm. and then actually going full circle with that and leading it into suspense. Yeah. I thought it was very well done. That was super random, but I just remembered it. Yeah. Before we go on to the third movie, yeah. there's a major thing that happened behind the scenes of Back to the Future 2 that I think is really Im- important to bring up since we're highlighting the franchise, if you will. Because it changed, you know, Hollywood Hollywood forever, yes. So, Crispin Glover, who played George McFly excellently in Back to the Future Part 1, did not want to return for Back to the Future Part 2. He disagreed heavily with Robert Zemeckis on the ending of the Back to the Future 1. He did not like that when Marty came back from the past, that the family was rich all of a sudden, and he didn't like that the, you know, the better finances equates to happiness and that's why the family's doing better. He just, and like he gets the car and he's like, I think that that's the wrong message of the movie. I think it should be that he just gets back and his family's happy. They disagreed. It was fine. And obviously he probably wanted a little bit more money, but the reason why he distances himself from the movies is because of what happened next. One, the producer of this film named Bob Gale started talking a bunch of shit about Crispin Glover saying, oh, he demanded as much money as, as Michael J. Fox, and he did this and he did that, and that's why Crispin Glover, like, will never forgive the franchise and, like, not go back and, like, do conventions or anything like that is because of the producer kind of keeps running his mouth. But he's forgiven Robert Zemeckis because he went on to work with him again in Beowulf, and he said that they kind of buried the hatchet. Mm-hmm. But he sued Back to the Future 2 and Universal for a lot of money because... When they did the makeup on Back to the Future 1 as an old man, they had they made a fake mold of his face. And they took those molds, remade the makeup, and applied it to a new actor for Back to the Future 2. And didn't really market that it was a new actor. Mm-hmm. And tried to trick audiences into thinking, oh, it's the same, it's still George McFly. When it wasn't at all. And he is watching the movie, or kind of hears about it, and is like, they totally just robbed my likeness. You've heard of likeness rights before. The reason you've heard of that is because of what happened. He sued Universal for a chunk of money for using his likeness and his image without permission. Mm-hmm. And that lawsuit got so heavy and heavy 
And I'm pretty yeah. sure, I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure that they settled for something around $760,000. They ended up paying Crispin Glover. Because they discovered it was cheaper to pay him than to, uh, like, try to fight it in court. Mm-hmm. So they settled out of court for a lot of money. And because of that, SAG, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, now has clauses preventing other studios from using likeness without payable transactions and permission. And it's all because of what happened on Back to the Future 2. That's nuts. It's gnarly that 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 happened, yeah. Yeah. And you can actually watch interviews with Chris McGlover. He'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like, he won't bring it up unprovoked, but if someone asks about it, he'll be like, oh, yeah, here's exactly what happened, and he'll just go off. And it's really, really interesting. That's fascinating. I'll have to watch that, because I knew... I knew some shady stuff happened, like, on the producer side of that movie, Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know it was, like, to that extent. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Wow, really just changed everything. Yeah. Good for George McFly. Good for Crispin Glover. Yes. Hey, you, get your damn hands off of her. Oh. Oh. (laughs) God, so So with all that being said, let's move on to part three. Another page of notes. Which came out in 1990, again, starring the same cast. Just looking a little bit different with the makeup. Um, this time, Marty gets a letter from Doc Brown saying he's all the way back in 1885 because at the end of the second movie, he was struck by lightning and it really screwed up the time circuits. And yes. uh, wow, you want to have a fun Western to watch? This oh, yeah. is This fulfills your needs for that. I don't think this movie takes itself seriously at all. I think this is the most fun of the trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's super fun. It is. And he has 1955 Doc Brown helping him. And I absolutely love whenever they go back in time and they're at the drive-in theater and uh, Marty McFly's like, oh, I'm just going to run into those Indians. And Doc Brown's like, oh, you're you're not thinking fourth dimensionally, dude. They're not going to be there. And then uh, time travels and who's there? Indians. Yeah. Well, Native Americans. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, this movie does have a lot of bad stereotypes about, yeah. like, not only Indians, but, like, just a ton of, like... that. That's one thing that bothers me about the movie, is instead of it being, like, actual Western times, they made it, like, fake Hollywood Western. Yeah. Instead of, like, it being more of a realistic 1950s, kind of like the second or the first movie, mm-hmm. they just went full fake Western, yeah. which is kind of fun, but it was a little bit just kind of like, ah, okay. Um, but, yeah, no, that was a funny bit. Um, I I literally in my notes just have blank bit blank bit of like just bits in the movie that yeah. I liked. Um, one of them being uh, the Einstein bit before he goes back in time. He, um, 1955 Doc Brown's reading the note and he goes, and I ha- make sure please go back and take care of Einstein. And then he goes Einstein. And then Marty <laughs> McFly goes, yeah, your dog. And he goes, oh. and then like gets sad. But then his, his dog in 1955 says something. He goes, calm down, Copernicus. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so funny. And I love the fact that we got more of 1955 Doc Brown because that is the Doc Brown from the original Back to the Future. That dynamic that like made audiences fall in love with this like this franchise. Yeah. So the fact that they gave us a little bit of more of him in the first act decided to kind of send Marty off really highlights a positive of the movie. Another major positive for me is that the motivation of this film is very much so dependent on the relationship between Marty McFly and Doc Brown. Like, it's all about Marty McFly deciding, no, I'm going to go get my friend back. Even though he was like, no, whatever, don't come for me. And the reason he does go back for him is because he was murdered 
by Buford T. Uh, Buford Tannum. Buford Tannum. I'm thinking Buford T. <laughs> From Smokey and the Bandit. God. <laughs> wow. Different movie. Yeah. Um, oh. But so that's ultimately why, because he doesn't want to see his friend get murdered and, mm. you know. It's very unfortunate. So, yeah. it, like you said, it, it does rely on their relationship. Yeah, it, it brought it down to a more personal level. Absolutely, yeah. And one bit that I absolutely love in the beginning, because, again, you have to think about it. Like, this is still 17-year-old senior in high school, Marty yeah. McFly. He walks into the tavern, and he's like, can I have uh, an ice water? And then everyone just starts laughing their ass off because, you know, they're in 1885, uh, and they're just like, we don't drink ice water in here. We drink whiskey. And he's just like looking at it and he's like, ooh, because, you know, you have to think about it when you're young. Yeah. And if you did underage drink, which we don't support at all, it's absolutely stupid. <laughs> um, but in that time, you know, you drink and it's just like, ooh, it's not fun. Yeah. So it's 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 little things like that that further the character development in my eyes. Yeah, and I love how Doc Brown invents shit like he makes a refrigerator and he makes yeah. it iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, I also love that this movie kind of takes focus away from Marty and more on Doc Brown and what like kind of Doc Brown wants because it's very much so a send off for that character mm-hmm. and um, well it does touch on Marty's family a bit and I think you get Leah Thompson's best since the first movie she was great in 1955 yeah but you get a little bit of her in as like this Irish immigrant and she does a really really great job I think mm-hmm. and uh, you know can't get Crispin Glover back so they just had. Michael J. Fox to do the yeah. husband, which was interesting to see. Um, another great thing I like about this movie is it shows kind of more character growth in that, like in this movie, Doc Brown was very much open to knowing about the future. Mm-hmm. Where ways in the past, he would like, he ripped up Marty's letter, like, no, I don't want to know anything about the future. But since it saved his life once, when Marty gets to 1885, he's like, all right, tell me everything. What's going on? Because yeah. he's like, clearly you wouldn't have come back if it wasn't for a big reason. Exactly. Something I like now that we're talking about the third movie is that they do this uh, in the second movie as well. Whenever he gets to Hill Valley, whenever Marty gets to Hill Valley, Mm -hmm. he always just like takes in his surroundings and just like almost can't believe where he's at and believe that it's real, that time travel Mm -hmm. is real. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. And they use the same bit over and over again, even from the first one with Marty getting hit, getting knocked out in some uh, some fashion yeah and then and wakes thompson, up yeah, yeah with leah thompson he's like mom like oh, i had this yeah. horrible dream and it sounds like his mom because it's yeah. still leah thompson mm-hmm. it's that um family tree yeah. and it's just it's it's formulaic yeah but it's still like it's tradition yeah it's tradition yeah. and you don't like break like tradition. you go to the movie looking for it you know yeah. it's kind of like going to die hard being like he better say yippee ki you know yeah exactly like and uh something else i really like about this movie is unlike the second one this story is very character based mm-hmm. and more of a personal touch. And while this movie isn't nearly as fun as Back to the Future Two, I do think it's more emotionally resonant than Back to the Future Two. Mm-hmm. You know, you get Doc with his new love interest Clara in the movie, and I, the actress's name is leaving me, but she gave a great performance. That's they just bonded over a bunch of nerdy shit, which is so funny because yeah. um, on doc brown's tombstone it says like erected mm-hmm. uh because of clara yeah and he goes back and he's like who's clara and he's like i, I have no idea like me fall in love Pff, yeah. please i'm a man of science Bushly. i don't believe in that yeah um and then he meets clara and he does exactly what happened mm-hmm. is he falls in love love at first sight and it's just it's fun character things like mm-hmm. that that i really enjoy yeah and uh a great like character just like a character arc for doc brown is 
going from being a man of science and using only his brain to finally being able to act on emotion. Because mm-hmm. there's a great scene with Marty where he suggests that he's going to stay. And then Marty's like, no, 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 You're a man of science. That's not how you're supposed to think. And you kind of see him like kind of be like, you're right. But you can tell it's not what he wants. Yeah. And then even when he suggests like bringing Clara with them, you're like, no, 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 no. He's like, we can't do that. And then so at the end with the train and the uh, third act, which is exciting and fun. Oh, like, it's tra- so tra- much fun. Trying to get the DeLorean to 88. <laughs> And then all these, all, all hell breaks yeah. loose. It's yeah. such a fantastic sequence. They put the icing on the cake when Marty gets the hoverboard and like throws it to him. It's so Ugh. fucking fun. And it's it's set up early on yeah, in the movie you see too. Because yeah. Doc Brown's like, hey, don't forget that floating device. And he's like, oh, hoverboard? And throws it in the car. And you're like, yeah. why would he need a hoverboard in 1885? Yeah. And then it doesn't bring it up until the yeah. very end. Yeah, it was really, really good stuff. And uh just when you see, like, even Marty, who's literally his only goal was to go back and bring Doc back. Mm-hmm. When he sees him holding her and them going off on the hoverboard, he's just, like, and shuts the door. And, like, it was just, like, a nice moment of just, yeah. like, okay. And just kind of lets him go. And But it, but at the same time, because I could see on paper if you were told, hey, this movie's about him going to get Doc, but then he doesn't get Doc. You'd be like, oh, well, that just seems like a wasted opportunity, a waste of time. But yeah. emotionally, you don't feel like it was a, the movie was a waste at all in that mm-hmm. moment. And a big emotional part in this movie that I really love is uh, whenever they're having the town hall party mm-hmm. and ZZ Top is playing, which, yeah, why not? Um, that's probably my favorite sequence in that movie mm-hmm. is because you get that like pure emotion between Doc Brown and Clara. Yeah. And just how much that Doc Brown is like infatuated with her. Mm-hmm. And I to me that's when Doc Brown is like, I'm going to stay in the past. Yeah. Like this is who I want to be with. And, and also I love that scene too because of the Frisbee bit. <laughs> oh Frisbee yeah. pies, that's cool. And then later he and like uses it. I that shit was so funny to me. And also I just noticed it upon my most recent rewatch. Mm-hmm. The actor who gets him to do the shooting game yeah. played one of the main roles in Blazing Saddles. Really? So it was like bringing that gut from that Western into this Western, and he kind of does this kind of the same characteristics. So I was okay. like, that's pretty funny. That's like, funny, I never, yeah. obviously, when I, when I was a kid, I never watched Blazing Saddles, so I never put it together, but it was a really just a cool, subtle thing that they did that I liked. Yeah. But uh, one of the negatives with this movie is that while it is more emotionally resonant Mm -hmm. it's because of that reason it's not as engaging on a physical level like it's not as fun as back to the future 2 or one for that matter like one was the perfect balance two was all fun three is all emotion Mm -hmm. in a way i mean they have bits of you know greatness but that's just kind of how i feel on like a basic level about them yeah and the script is a lot less subtle for back to the future 3 like they just kind of tell and throw everything at you yep oh my god i love the bit with strickland how he's like the sheriff. The sheriff in town. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. But uh, w- one thing I do like is in the third act of this movie, it does give a sense of urgency. Like when Buford comes to kill Marty and then they have to make the train. And it's like, mm. God. Oh, and I love how Marty points it out. He goes, he's like when um, Buford shows up and he goes, Clint Eastwood. And then Marty looks and then Marty looks at the clock and it's 7.55 and he goes, damn, why do we always cut these things so close? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Yeah. Uh. 
And I, I, and I love the Clint Eastwood thing. Oh, yeah. That whole sequence mm-hmm. is awesome. The shootout. Because yeah. mm-hmm. he doesn't know what he's going to do. But then he remembers that Clint Eastwood movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I like how he just like tells people that that's his name. Yeah. Because like, the first movie, the great bit of like, Calvin Klein's your name, right? It's written all over your underwear. Shit's mm-hmm. so funny. Yeah. But uh, in 1885, fucking nobody knows who Clint Eastwood is. Because yep. he wasn't born. No. But... um. Yeah, I just love that he's, like, this cowboy, and, like, he showed a, shows up in this, like, pink garb or whatever it was, the outfit that, like, he's, like, is this really what people wore in 1885? And he's, like, Doc Brown's, like, yeah, have you ever seen a Western <laughs> like, movie? He's, like, come on. And, and then he gets there, and like, everyone makes like, fun of him. I've never seen Clint Eastwood wear this, and even 1955 Doc Brown's, like, who's Clint Eastwood? Like, it's just, it brings it all yeah. together for oh, me. Yeah. It's great. It's great. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a fitting end to the trilogy and especially him learning the lesson to not let words get to him or he doesn't race that guy. Because he's yellow. Yeah. (laughs) And doesn't hit the car. You know, he's able to, you know, avoid that future. And then the you're fired from Back to the Future 2 gets erased and, you know, Mm. all of that comes together. And then you see Doc come in the fucking flying time machine train and tell him goodbye. And it it was a nice fitting end for the Doc Brown character overall. And, uh, yeah, no, it was just... It was a nice little wholesome movie. It's a fun trilogy, to say Mm -hmm. the very least, in layman's terms. It's a very fun, enjoyable trilogy that you can just pop on at any time and just really enjoy it. And you don't have to watch it in order either, because like you were saying with Evil Dead, in Mm -hmm. each of the movies, they recap basically the last one, how the last one ended. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, that's going to really do it for the franchise spotlight of Back to the Future. (laughs) And uh, thank you guys so much for checking out all that stuff. We're going to be bringing, you know, combining everything into the podcast. Like we said, it's going to be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to it. You got anything last to say, Ryan? Uh, No, just thank you, everyone, for watching. You can check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash movie nights, correct? Yes. Awesome. That's the one I just learned. (laughs) Uh, You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, we are movie nights. Uh, Instagram and Twitter, we are knights underscore movie. Um, so yeah, go ahead and find us, follow us, keep up to date with what we're doing. I will say most of the time we are active on Facebook, but it does not hurt to follow all of us yes. everywhere. Yes, exactly. So um, thank you guys so much for watching. Please follow us at those social medias and subscribe to us on YouTube and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.